and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. Well, uh, we come today uh, to worship uh, as those who in Jesus Christ know that it is well with our soul. As we come to sit under his word, allow me to give you uh, my greeting this morning as well as to greet you from Westminster Theological Seminary and since I'm a minister from your sister denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, allow me to greet you on behalf of the OPC as well uh, as we come this morning to the Word of God in the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me please in your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and you have listed for you there in your uh, worship folder the uh, text is Romans 1.16. I would like to read... From Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to verse 17, so that we catch the context. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1 through to verse 17. And I invite you to listen with heart and mind, because this is the Word of God. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious gospel in your word. And now, Lord, we ask that you would arrest our mind and our hearts we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to open up the scriptures, to illumine the scriptures, to impress and apply the scriptures to our hearts. Lord, we pray 
that as the word is preached, the Lord Jesus Christ would speak to his people. And we pray that as the word is preached, we would be encouraged in the gospel and equipped in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that where we need to be corrected, we'd be corrected. And Lord, we would ask that if there would be one person here today who has not yet believed the gospel, that by your sovereign power, by your all-powerful spirit, you would give the gift of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The book of Romans. For different people, that title stirs different emotions and thoughts. Great preachers with magisterial life shaping sermon series. Some of the greatest preachers of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, James Montgomery Boyce, took years to preach through the book of Romans. The legend is, and some of you would perhaps know more of the facts of this than I do, that when Dr. Boyce had preached through Romans for years and he finally hit chapter 12, he began his sermon with, and now application. I recall hearing of one of the renowned preachers in the city in which I just pastored was asked by a woman in his congregation, Dr. So-and-so, what's your favorite book? And he said, Romans. Maybe you have strong feelings about Romans also. It's the treasure chest of the deep doctrines of grace. And maybe we're even a wee bit intimidated by the book of Romans just because it seems to be such a treasure chest of deep doctrine. And if you've been at church for any length of time and if you've heard anything of the gospel preached to you at all, there's a very good chance that you have had some exposure to this book. Would you think of giving the book of Romans to a church as a a basics course on what it means to be a Christian? If you were going to start a new church, if you're going to launch a new mission work, would you think of beginning in the book of Romans? Maybe some of you would, but that's precisely why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. His purpose in writing this great doctrinal epistle was to connect with the church in Rome, as it were, as a forward operating base for the new mission that he expected to take to Spain. He wanted to launch his mission to Spain from Rome, and and he'd never met the Christians in Rome. Romans is, by apostolic intention, a mission-founding, mission-catalyzing letter. It contains the teaching that the apostle intended would establish the church as a mission base to a part of the world that he had not yet been able to reach. And what he has chosen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give them is a rich exposition and defense of the gospel. And so he starts right away by describing the gospel, by declaring his confidence in the gospel to get the work done that God had commissioned him to do. So here's what we have to learn today by listening in on the beginning of this mission-shaping, mission-catalyzing letter to a strategically placed church. Here's what it is. A healthy ministry accomplishes God's powerful purposes in people's lives 
by prioritizing the preaching of the gospel. Now let me give that to you again as a church that is established here in this community as a lighthouse, as salt and light, as you're seeking to do what you are for God's purposes on your mission. A healthy ministry accomplishes God's powerful purposes in people's lives by prioritizing the preaching of the gospel. I think of a man whom we'll call Jim. In his middle ages, he had lost everything. In middle age, he'd lost everything. He'd lost his family, he had lost his home, he had lost his job, and he was now losing his health as he was lying in the hospital, dying from alcoholism. And his doctor said to him, Jim, here's the, here's the, the, the solution. You stop drinking or you die. And one night, the family pastor visited Jim, who did not know Christ, and took him to the chapel at the hospital, and a man who had been a hard-hearted, hard-fighting opponent of the gospel had the Gospel of John read to him. And as the first chapter of the Gospel of John was read to him, his heart broke, his eyes were opened, he fell to his knees, confessed Christ. And now some 30 years later, Jim has been a Christian, and as he anticipates meeting his Savior soon, he is trusting Christ. And the Lord renewed and restored his family. I think of Colin, a young man in the church who had been raised in the church his whole life. He looked like a Christian, smelled like a Christian, knew how to walk like a Christian, and talk like a Christian. But his life was consumed with those kinds of sins that young men have got themselves enslaved to. And one evening, he was discovered in a secret, deeply set, besetting sin. As he began to meet with the pastor of the church, and the pastor of the church began to read to him from Psalm 51 and Romans chapter 6, the lights went on, his heart was changed, and he said, you mean I can be a new man? I don't have to live like this the rest of my life? The answer was yes. And he gave his life to Christ, and now he's walking with Christ in newness of life. Now let me ask you, what if God had given us a letter to tell us how to unleash God's power in people's lives for change? Not just how to be a religious person, but how to become a righteous person. Not just how to fit into the pattern of cultural Christianity, but how, how genuinely, deeply wicked people become like Jesus. What if God himself had opened up to us the secret of such dynamic church life and told us how he deploys his power in people's lives. That's precisely what he's given to us in this passage. The disclosure of where his power for a genuinely changed standing with God and genuinely changed character from God comes from. It tells us that the power of God comes through the gospel. This morning we're going to look at three aspects disclosed in this text. We're going to see the priority of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the person of the gospel. The priority of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the person of the gospel, as it will show us that a healthy ministry accomplishes God's powerful purposes by prioritizing the preaching of the gospel. 
Notice with me, if you would, first of all, the priority of the gospel. The priority of the gospel. How many of us have ever sent a text message and you realize you get one word off? And you have to do that little asterisk thing and send another word that says, no, I meant to say this. One word can make a world of difference in the message, can it? Look at verse 16 and the first word. For, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That little word for is pivotal for understanding why God's spokesman chose to say this at all and why it matters in this letter. He's never met this church. He's introducing himself. He's introducing his ministry. And look at how he puts it. Look back up at verse 11, if you would, and just follow with me. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and the foolish. Watch. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you see it? There's the missionary heart just beating through the letter. I long to see you. Why? That I may reap some harvest among you, the way I have been in other regions outside of Israel. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you as well. What I want you to see is this, that what's driving The Spirit-inspired writer is a longing to see the harvest of souls amongst the nations, amongst the peoples, to hear what was read for us in our Old Testament reading, those promises to Abraham come to fulfillment, come to fruit in the harvest of souls from amongst the nations. Archibald Alexander, 1812, installed as the first professor at Old Princeton Seminary that became the foundation for the Presbyterian movement in the United States, said this, that if the church understood her obligations to her Lord as she ought, the whole body would be organized like one great mission station. That's what the Apostle Paul is showing us here. He is eager to preach the gospel And what I want you to see this morning is that this little verse that is so familiar to us about the power of the gospel in our lives, it's actually rationale for a mission-hungry, a mission-eager ministry. For the reason I'm longing to be there, the reason I'm eager to preach the gospel, his conviction about the ability of the gospel drives him to a harvest-hungry, eager ministry right at the heart of the Roman Empire. His next words are really interesting, practical, and searching. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, you know how this kind of turn of phrase works. If you come home after curfew on Saturday night and your mom says, I am, not ha- I, I am not a little unhappy with this, 
what does she mean? I'm really mad. Or you present your report card at the end of the term, and from the letters that appear in the columns next to your grades, it's clear that you were doodling when you should have been listening. And your dad says, I'm not a little disappointed in your efforts. What does he mean? I'm really disappointed in your efforts. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what does he mean? I'm really confident in the gospel. Even I'm really proud of it. Here's a question. Do you think the apostle Paul was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Jesus warned his disciples in Mark chapter 8 that the pressures and pleasures of this world would tempt them to be ashamed of him and his words. Paul wrote to one of his own disciples who was pastoring the church in Ephesus and was tempted to be timid, and he encouraged them this way, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Of course he was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because he knew what trying to preach and live the gospel in this world was like. He knew that with all the philosophies and all the religions and the power structures and the culture, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel was considered to be folly. It was considered moronic. In fact, when he'd gone to preach in Corinth, he says he was there in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Sure, Paul was tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. It made him look like a fool. It got him branded as a snake oil salesman and a wannabe philosopher by the intellectual elite. It was even, he's even branded as a criminal and, and by the religious elite. Now tell me you're not there in your classes during semester. If you hold to the gospel, your teacher gets you sniffed out right away and from the first day of class, your semester is one long exercise in humiliation. Tell me you haven't been there as a parent. You've got a behavioral problem that you have tried to guide your child through the gospel and what you get is, oh, mom, as the eyes roll. Or they walk out of the room as you walk into the room because you hold them to the gospel. In those kind of situations, are we not tempted to think and act even as though we were less than confident in the gospel? The Apostle Paul went through that. And here now, he's planting his flag right in the middle of the empire. And he's saying, no, with everything I've been through, with everything I've seen, with everyone I've encountered, religious people, pagans, philosophers, barbarians, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So he was eager to preach it because he knew what it was. See, the gospel is not another philosophy. The gospel, gospel is not another psychological tool. The gospel is not another religious ritual. It's the power of God. You see, what you believe about the gospel will drive how you use the gospel, where and why. Somebody has said, we, 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 we seldom live what we profess. We always live what we believe. And we can say all that we want about what we believe about the gospel, but when we're not eager to deploy it in our lives, in our problems, in our ministries, in our marriages, we say what we really believe about it. The apostle had it revealed to him by God that the gospel 
was the power of God. That brings us to the second, the priority of the gospel, second observation, the power of the gospel. If you've got your Bible open, you'll notice in verse 16, there's another for. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Why is he confident in the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation. Here's what that means. The power that belongs to God. The power that belongs to God gets exercised, gets expressed through the message of the good news, the gospel. Now, when I woke up this morning, the earth had made its rotation around the sun, a sun that God had spoken into existence, and you and I had daylight. When I sat down to breakfast, my dear wife gave me a breakfast that involved ingredients from grain and eggs and things that God had created and caused to grow. God has created, he orders, he preserves, he sustains the cosmos and the cycles and the systems of nature that give us our very being. And if we were to continue to read in Romans chapter 1, we would hear Paul say that all of that is an expression, is a revelation of what? His divine power. What he's telling us in Romans 1.16 is that the God who created everything, who sustains everything, who reveals himself to us as that one whose divine power gets gets expressed in our very being, His power gets exercised through the gospel. For it is the power of God. To do what? To accomplish all of his gracious purposes for his people. For, another for, salvation. Now sometimes when we read that word, we think of conversion, we think of the forgiveness of sins. Salvation means that we've been born again, that we've been forgiven of our sins. And it does mean that. Wonderfully, it means that. But that's not all it means. And if we were to keep reading in the book of Romans uh, uh, today, we'd learn that the, the term salvation describes all that God has done for us in Christ. Salvation means our conversion, yes. Salvation means our justification, yes. That's coming in the next verse. Salvation also includes the growth that comes from a grace-changed heart. That's coming in chapters 6 through 8. That progressive change into the purpose for which God saves us, conformity to the likeness of Christ. You see, salvation means that he purposed not only to forgive us, but to form us to be like his own son. And not only means that, but it means he's guaranteed us glory, our final deliverance from this body of death, and sin into a resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel, the power of God is for all of that. It is for our regeneration. It is for our justification. It is for our sanctification. And ultimately, it is for our glorification. That's what the term salvation means in the book of Romans. And the question then is this, what else is there? To be accepted by God. 
to be conformed to Christ, to be secured for fellowship with God for all eternity. It's all of God's gracious purposes in our life. And he says the gospel is the power of God for all of that. Sometimes we can think that the gospel is powerful enough for some parts of our life, but not for other parts of our life. We can think the gospel is powerful enough for our religious experience on Sunday, but it's not really for my relational experience in my marriage. It's for catechism, but it's not for classroom through Monday through Friday. It's for my women's study group, my men's study group, but it's not for who I'm becoming in my business risks and my business opportunities. See, the reason that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel and he was eager to proclaim it was it was because it is how God exercises his power for every purpose that he has ordained for his people. And you'll notice not all, just all of his purposes, but all of his people. Notice what it says. The gospel is for everyone who believes. Now from the context, it's obvious who he means. At the end of the verse, he identifies the Jews and the Greeks. Jews were people who first received the message of the gospel. The Greeks meant non-Jews, specifically who worshipped the gods of the Gentile world. Up in verse 14, he mentions another group, barbarians. Uh, barbarians were people who spoke unintelligible languages. They were the non-Greek speakers. They were the uncultured class of the world. Listen, the reason he was so confident in the gospel and so eager to preach it was that there was not one kind of people in the world that the gospel is not powerful enough to save. There's no race, there's no sex, there's no social class, there's no educated class, there's no category of human being guilty and corrupted by sin that the gospel is not powerful enough to justify, to sanctify, and to glorify. That is gloriously good news. Maybe you sit there this morning and you're thinking, well, there's no way the gospel can be for me. My, my past is just too shameful. You have no idea. The mess of my family of origin is just too broken. It's too controlling for the gospel to make a real difference in my life. My secret sin is too embedded. It's too powerful for the gospel to be for me. I will always be defined by my past. The gospel is not powerful enough to set me free from that. I love how Paul put it to a church in another city. Listen to what he said. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel was powerful enough to save such as them, such as me. That's good news. It's also convicting news. Because sometimes we don't think we need the power of God to be saved. 
Sometimes we think our sin is just so slight, it's so subtle, it's just what everybody does. It really wouldn't take much at all for God to save me. If you just flip the page, there's a list of the unrighteousness that God says deserves death. Look at verse 29 for a moment, if you would. Just listen to the list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. John Calvin described the reality this way. When we consider who we are and we examine what is in us, not one of us can find one particle of righteousness in himself. But on the contrary, we are full of sins and iniquities, so much so that no other party is required to accuse us than our own Friends, we are all in the everyone for whom the gospel has to be the power of God for salvation. See, the issue is not your culture of origin, it's not your social status, it's not your abilities or the nature of your sin, no matter how barbaric it is or how bland it is. The issue is the power of God working through the gospel. But I don't want you to miss this. There is an eternity effecting qualification on the everyone who experiences the power of God through the gospel. Do you notice it? Who believes? The power of God for salvation is not exercised toward people just because they're people. The power of God for salvation is not exercised toward people because they're Jewish or because they're Greek or because they're a barbarian or simply because they're lost. The power of God for salvation is for everyone and only everyone who believes. For everyone who has received Christ, who has confided in Christ, who has trusted Christ, who is offered to us in the gospel. And that brings us finally to the third observation of the text. We've seen the priority of the gospel power of the gospel. Finally, would you notice the person of the gospel? The person of the gospel. How do we define the good news? The gospel, that's what it means, good news. How do we describe it? Well, all we've got to do is just lift your, pa- your eyes up the page to verses 1 to 4, and he gives it to us. Look at what he says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning a son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, the gospel is the power of God to salvation because it is God's message that reveals the person of Christ. Let that sink in. It's God's gospel. It's his idea. 
His design, His initiative, His revelation, His action. It's disclosed through all of Scripture, promised in the Old Testament, realized in the New Testament. It's concerning His Son. It centers on Christ. It presents Christ as He is raised and therefore has been crucified as our King. That's God's powerful, life-changing gospel. Christ, from all of Scripture, promised to us, crucified for us, raised for us. Let me, let me say this to you. The gospel is the power of God, not because just because it's a right set of categories about salvation, although it is that. The gospel is not just the good news about the different benefits we receive from the grace of salvation. The gospel is not simply a different kind of religious feeling than legalism. And the gospel's not a moral mandate to transform the structures of society. The gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ from the scriptures in his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection for everyone who believes in him. Or to put it the way Calvin did, the gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. So the only way that we benefit from the gospel is to receive him, Christ, who gave up his life for sin and sinners and now lives to mediate the power of God to everyone who belongs to him. So would you let me ask you this morning, do you believe in him? See, if the power of God is not operative in your life, that might be the problem. Maybe, maybe you're trusting in the power of your background. Maybe you trust in the power of your association with the church. Maybe we trust in the power of our more correct theology. But we're not trusting Christ. Or it might be that we have some aspect of our life where we really are ashamed of the gospel. We believe Christ, believe in him, he's ours. Well, the gospel's not for that problem. His gospel's not being applied to that pleasure. His gospel's not being deployed when I face that pressure. And the life-changing power of God is dulled, it's dampened in our life because we do not functionally believe that Christ is sufficient there. Here's the good news. Christ is the power of God for all the glorious graces of salvation for everyone who simply believes. The power of God is experienced. The power of God is experienced in your life to change your life simply by turning our hearts toward Christ, simply by trusting him is our righteousness alone. This is the glorious good news. No hoops, no hurdles, no religious rituals, no righteous deeds that we bring to the table. Just faith alone, in Him alone. And are you there with Christ today? That's the message that the great mission-hearted apostle wanted out front. That's what he wanted in as the foundation of the new mission station he wanted to establish at Rome. That's what he knew would make a church dynamic. That's what he knew gave it its power, is the gospel. 
So the implication, the application, if you want to be a healthy church, you want to be a healthy ministry, is not only that we must believe the gospel, but we have to prioritize the gospel. Prioritize the preaching of the gospel. Lord's Day morning, Lord's Day evening, women's groups, men's groups, young persons groups, mercy ministries, leadership groups, fellowship groups. If you want to be a God-powered church, everything you do is simply a delivery system for the gospel. Christ, from all of Scripture, for all people, by grace alone, through faith alone, for His righteousness alone. A healthy ministry accomplishes God's powerful purposes in people's lives by prioritizing the preaching of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel, the gospel of your Son, whom you promised and you sent, who obeyed for all of his people, who died for everyone who would believe, who is raised and now reigns and mediates the power and grace of God to everyone who believes. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this gospel in the scriptures, and we thank you that you've sent your spirit to illumine the scriptures and to empower the preaching of the gospel. And so we pray, Lord, in our lives and in this congregation and in the churches throughout this land, oh Lord, would you bless the preaching, the teaching, and the living of the gospel on the Lord's day. Monday through Saturday, in families, and in the regular rhythms and relationships of life. Oh Lord, would you glorify yourself through a harvest of souls growing to the image of Christ through the powerful proclamation of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.